Okay. Are we good? Good. Let's talk about gay marriage. All right. I'm dead, I'm dead serious. All right. Look, here are some things that we all need to remember about this whole gay marriage thing. You ready? Apparently the computer's not. Four principles about marriage. Number one, marriage was instituted by God before the fall. Marriage was instituted by God before the fall. This was God's idea long before sin ever got in the picture, right? When Adam and Eve were brought together and were declared to be bone of bone, flesh of flesh, joined as one, that union was chosen by God long before any of us ever were around to be sanctified. There was no sin in the garden when God brought Adam and Eve together. The world was fully redeemed. There was no curse. There was no brokenness. There was no death. It was a holy, completely perfect environment that God himself could step into and out of with no offense to his character. Marriage was instituted before the fall in a completely whole and wholly perfect environment. Principle two, marriage is the picture God has chosen to represent his love for his bride, the church. Marriage is the symbol not it, when, when we are looked at by Christ corporately as a people, he says, that's my bride. That's my bride. I am her husband. We will be wedded to Christ after the return of Jesus. Right? There will be a great wedding feast in heaven at which we will eat A&M. And I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Seriously, I don't know if I've ever been to a better place in my life. <laughs> they don't even pay me to say this stuff publicly. <laughs> no, I don't think Chipotle will have a seat at the table. A&M a- a- will. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, marriage is the picture that God has chosen. All right. When God chooses something, do you know what that's? What that does to it, it sanctifies it. That's right. It makes it holy. You and I are chosen by God. Our sanctification is based on God's choosing. Principle three, marriage is sanctified outside of culture. Whatever is happening in culture, marriage stands outside of it. Marriage stands completely within the possession of God. Right? Because God made it in a whole, perfect, unbroken world. God chose it to be the picture that he will choose for his relationship to church, and therefore, there will be nothing that is allowed to come against that picture. Marriage is sanctified outside of culture. Culture does not define marriage. If you ever listen to a wedding that I do, you will not hear me say a thing about the state of Pennsylvania, because they don't have a right to it. I talk about God's word and the authority of God himself in joining two to become one. Right? The state of Pennsylvania, I understand legally, the government has to have systems and things like that. I still sign a marriage certificate, you know. There are certain things. You render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I, I get that. 
But marriage is not one of the things that belongs to Caesar. It belongs to God. God instituted outside of culture. Culture needs to steward it, right? But it doesn't belong to culture. Fourthly, marriages are joined together by God himself. Here is a man. Here is a woman. These two are joined together by God and are literally made to become one. And what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Marriage is fine. You don't need to be worried about the institution of marriage. Right? In this whole gay marriage Supreme Court thing, like marriage is, is rock solid. Culture may be stewarding it inappropriately. But the absolute institution of marriage and the holiness and sanctity of it, God will not allow it to become against. And this is nothing new that we're experiencing right now. One of the things that's just so intriguing to me is that there's a whole lot more divorces than there are gay people getting married. You don't hear the church uprising against divorce. In fact, we're partner with it. Our stats are the same. You know, so let's not be hypocrites in this. Let's not be hypocrites. We, we need to be very, very careful about how we steward ourselves in the midst of a culture that's seeking to steward marriage, albeit with the broken systems that it has to work with. Number two, be very careful. Is homosexuality an abomination? Yes, so are all of these. Take a look at the list, identify yourself, and put away your judgment. Right? The scriptures call all of these flat-out abominations. So there, there is no right for, when it comes to ministering to the homosexual population, the church is lost. We don't know what to do. Because our initial response was hate. Now, I do think that there is a grassroots, groundswell movement of seeking to honestly and wholly minister to the homosexual community. But we have not figured that out there. And we had best stay very humble in these regards and put away our judgments. God judges, we do not. And if God judges based on abominations, again, identify yourself in the list. And let's be humble together and love one another together. Number three, the issue at hand is not with the government or homosexuality or marriage. The issue at hand is the church. Look, uh, we'll take another hot topic. If abortion is eradicated from America because the government says so, that is a terrible thing. If abortion is eradicated from America because the government passes legislation, bummer. Then that means that we have not done our work. Right? Legislation, governmental authority, is not meant to be transformative. The Spirit of God and the people of God are meant to be transformative. We don't need legislation to come against abortion. We have the spirit and word of God. We don't need legislation to come against gay marriage. We have the spirit and word of God. And if Christians are relying on government to get it right according to God's will, folks, look at the scriptures. Show me where it ever happened. It doesn't. And God doesn't mean it to. Government is meant to be stewards of people not authoritative in a spiritual fashion. Abortion is not about governmental legislation. 
Abortion is a spiritual matter whereby we are destroying life, God's core value. Right? You understand? Like, th- this, is, this is about something bigger than legislation, something bigger than culture. And the church needs to be the active work in this. This, this is our role. This is our call. Right? Us sitting back and getting upset at government for not doing what God says is crazy because government has never done what God says. Um, us sitting back and waiting for legislation to happen is also crazy because you can't legislate morality. If you legislate morality, then you just recreate Phariseeism. And who wants that? Right? Morality isn't even the point. Holiness is. Right? Morality is not the point. Love is. Morality is not the point. The fruit of the Spirit is. Morality is not the point. Transformation is. And we all need to be transformed wherever we are, no matter what. So do I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Absolutely. Do I believe that homosexuality is a sin? Yep. But I can put the rest of the list back up there if we don't want to take a gander at that and talk about ourselves. So we must be very careful about how we transformatively engage this. The church is reacting. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. When the church reacts, she is off base. The church is not meant to react. The church is meant to act. We are meant to move forward, right? Not pull back and retreat or point fingers. We should not be surprised at sinners who sin. That's what sinners do. They sin. And a government that's full of a bunch of broken people is not going to get it right. But when we submit ourselves to God's government and God's economy and God's way of doing things, then we can actually engage this whole situation and conversation transformatively. But you don't need to be worried about the core of what is going on here. Marriage is fine. Marriage will always be fine. Marriage is rooted in God. And your marriage is rooted in God. So allow your marriage and the marriages that you engage to be what it is that God made them to be. And at all costs, put away hate and judgment and bigotry. Because that is what is keeping us from knowing what to do. We don't know what to do. I very much feel like Jehoshaphat in this situation when it comes to ministering to broken people in not just homosexuality, but in sexuality across the board. Like, I I feel like when Jehoshaphat is before this grand, big army, and he goes to God and he says, God, we don't have any power. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Look, we don't have any power. We don't know what to do. But right now, the church's eyes are not on God. They're on the issue. And we need to get our eyes back on God. And when we get our eyes back on him, then we can actually look more like him and then have his mind to understand how to engage where we are. This is about gazing at God, not gazing at the issue, and certainly not gazing at people that we want to judge from a distance. So, that's my thoughts for you today on the situation at hand. Uh, There will be a question and answer time (laughs) afterward, which I'd be thrilled to engage anybody around. Um, Question and answer time will be upstairs. So, uh, let's pray together and ask God's grace for this. God, we, uh, I want to pray specifically for that. I want to pray for your grace. God, open your heavens of grace upon us because we so deeply need your grace and your mercy. 
God, help us to think with your mind. Take our gaze off of the issues around us, God, and, and, and bring us back to a gaze that is focused on you. Help us to see you, to be captivated by you, not captivated by all the noise around us, not captivated by all the noise in our culture. Tune our ears to your frequency, God, not, not, not to the frequency around us. God, open us, open us up, Father. Reveal. The reason we need grace so desperately, God, is because, really, we do struggle with this. Like, there is hate in us. There is bigotry in us. There is fear in us. But those are all things that no person here would openly <laughs> admit to, you know, because it's, those are embarrassing things. Bottom line is, those things are real. And we, and we can and do feel those things in places that we're ashamed of, but our shame makes us hide from it instead of allowing your light to be revealed or for your light to reveal it because we think that you're going to shame us too, but you don't shame you're a gracious and forgiving God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. So bring our gaze back to you, God. Bring our gaze back to you and fill us with your heart and your love and your ways. God, we don't have any power and we certainly don't know what to do. But together we declare that our eyes are on you. And as soon as our eyes you know, get off of you and our gaze is averted, God, bring us back. Bring, bring our gaze back to you, to seeing you, to hearing you, to understanding you, to knowing you. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, you can take your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 8. So we took a really appropriate break, you know, for Holy Week and for... Um, all of the events surrounding Holy Week, and uh, it was a really beautiful time with God. I really enjoyed our experience together as a body of Christ um, uh, through, through our Holy Week experience. Very cool stuff. We've been teaching through uh, the book of 2 Samuel and teaching through the life of David, and so we are going to be headed back now to where we left off. Where we left off was with David having declared Jerusalem as his capital. We called it the city of David now. And uh, Jerusalem is now his hometown, and uh, David has wanted to set things right in Jerusalem from the very get-go. And uh, so he tried to do that by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Um, because, you know, when you're a king and you're ruling this big nation, you're going to want the nation's presence of God to, to be with you where you are. The problem is he did it wrong. He did it like the Philistines did it instead of like God told him to do it. And Uzzah ends up dying in the midst of this situation. Uh, but David learns a key lesson. And then he does it right, right? He, he, he has the priest carry the ark to the city correctly. And if you remember, David's just, just freaking out before God. He's just, just completely undignified, <laughs> completely just open and exposed and, and beautifully worshiping God. You know, and his wife comes against him, and, and uh, so he comes back at her, you know, keeping his gaze on God at all costs. As a result of this, it seems to me, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is about the Davidic covenant, which uh, Barry taught us about, about the, about the covenant that God made with David based on who David was, but more than anything, based on David's heart. When God looked at David, he saw a man that could steward his own heart, and so God made a covenant with David based around his heart and what it is that God knew that he could put in that place because David was so after him. Jesus himself, when he comes back and reigns on the earth, will sit on David's throne. 
It's not the throne of Jesus. It'll be David's throne that Jesus sits on. I just think that's really cool. So now we're to 2 Samuel 8, all right? Now, there's certain pieces of the Old Testament, the way the Old Testament rhythms work, that uh, we generally try and take what makes sense to us, and we sort of varnish over what, what might not, you know? So like the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant and worshiping God rightly. Yeah, I can preach and teach on that, you know? And the Davidic Covenant. Yeah, I can preach and teach on that. Uh, you know, David killing wantonly and destroying thousands of people in the name of God. Oh, David, oh, David and Bathsheba. Oh, we can teach on that, all right? But we're not going to, we're not going to do that. We're going to pull this thing back and head back to our army men and try and figure out what's going on in 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10, which I will be teaching you on today. So keep up. Here we go. Verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took Methuk Amma from the control of the Philistines. Oh, Dwayne, could you, could you run the pointer up to me, please? I, I meant to bring that up, and I forgot, because we'll be referring to this map at several points. Okay, so if you remember the Phil- Philistines, the Philistines are the bad guys, right? The Philistines are the Russia of the Cold War. You know, it, when, when you think about, like, what... Israel would most want to never have been, it, w- it was the Philistines. And so, uh, that's good stuff. All right. <laughs> it's, it, it's too late to apologize. What are you going to do? All right. Man, you got to love pop music. <laughs> All right. So uh, the Philistines are down here, right? David does a fantastic job of just completely uh, taking the Philistines out of the picture, which we've seen a lot of. What we're going to see David do in the next few chapters is take care of everyone else. All right. So David also defeated the Moabites, verse 2, and he made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Right? You know, I mean, it's like what spiritual principles are you going to pull from this? This is how to discipline your kids. You know, have, have them lay down. <laughs> you know, what do you, what do you do? What we're going to say, we'll, we'll come, okay, so moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, when he went to control, restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. So this is how you discipline your pets. Right? Verse 5. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem from, from Teba and Barothai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer. King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David became famous after the... After he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. 
He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites, and David's sons were royal advisors. So generations before David, God said to Joshua when they went in to take the land, Go in and destroy everyone. Kick everyone out or destroy them based on what it is that I tell you to do in the situation. But for the most part, it was destroy them. Destroy them, destroy them. Joshua and the people of Israel did not do that. Joshua and the people of Israel came into the land and they cleansed some of the land. Joshua, when he came up, came up from right down here. They came up along the east side of the Dead Sea through this land, and they crossed the Jordan River right here at Jericho. When they crossed the Jordan, they went into Jericho, and God gave them an amazing and a miraculous victory. I'm sure you've heard that story before about the walls falling down. And then they begin to, this sort of becomes home base for them, this area right here. And they begin to come out into this area and fight. But the more extended they get, the less adherent they become to what it is that God has told them. So that by the time Joshua dies, the people of Israel have conquered about this much. Maybe, even, uh, maybe up into here a little more. But about this much. And just maybe the first 10 miles over here off of the Jordan River, just for a little bit of time. But then if you remember, Joshua says to the people, look, I'm going to die soon, so you're going to have to choose what you're going to do. Either you're going to follow God or you're going to follow idols. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua dies. Judges 2.20 happens. And there arose a generation who did not know God. Joshua had already not done the greatest job following God's commands. And then an entire generation comes about which doesn't know God at all. So the concept of cleansing the land just completely goes out the back door. So that through the judges, all the way up until Samuel, when the people call for a king and Saul is given the kingship of Israel, which we've talked about, there is this sort of... Just people settle, you know, and they, and they sort of expand, and they actually make a lot of friends with the people around them that God had originally said should not be on the land, right? And so you've got Aram over here, you've got Ammon over here, you've got Moab over here, you've got Edom down here, the Philistines are in here, the Amalekites are down here, like right by the door. Um, David, when he becomes king, knows what to do, and he's a man after God's own heart. And so what we see David doing is systematically going through and accomplishing for his people what they should have done generations before. Did you hear that? What we see David doing is going through his story, the story that he comes from, the people of Israel, generationally looking at it and doing and making right what his previous generations did not do. This is a spiritual principle, folks. Your story matters. And so do the stories of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and the people that came before them. Where you come from counts. And our God is a generational God. You did not get to where you are because that's the way you developed. Right? You were trained to be who you were. God may have set you free from some incredible curses, 
but tell me that you're not like your parents when it comes to sin in your life, to the proclivities that we have, to the tendencies that we move towards. It's okay. This is all stuff under grace. We just got to be real with it. What David does is he systematically goes through these people and he wipes them out. So he took the Moabites, right? And he has all the Moabites. And now, and now, this is a man after God's own heart, remember? Because in the, the war theory in these days, remember, this is a warrior culture. The war theory in these days was no mercy. Like the sensei of the guy that fought the karate kid, you know? No mercy. Mercy is for the weak. Right? Not so. Not in God's eyes, and certainly not in David's. What David does is he has all the men of the Moabites lay down, and he takes a long rope, right, and he measures from one end of the rope to the other, and then he takes that end, you hold this end still, and all that all the way around, and then there's a group of men down at the end who are not measured, and he says, all these that I just measured die, but those can live. This is a merciful king. Huh. This isn't a king that seeks to wipe out and destroy just for the sake of wantonly wiping out and destroying. Interesting. Right? In the next portion, he comes up against Hadadezer, right, who tries to go and secure allies over by the Euphrates, which is far, far away. Right? You would have had to go all the way across there. I mean, it's like over here somewhere. Um, he captures them on the way. Notice what he does with the horses. He doesn't kill all the horses. Right? He hamstrings them. They're no good for fighting. They're no good for fighting anymore. But this is a nomadic people who rely on their horses to live in the desert. Interesting. This is a king who shows mercy. The Arameans of Damascus tried to help, right? So David come against them, came against them. David took tribute. David brought, David is just both smart and strong. And he ends up, he ends up securing this entire place, right? Everything that should have been secured, he secures. Now, God did not give him the same command that he gave Joshua. Go in and kill everything. Right? And so trying to live by another man's command, you can get mixed up doing that. Right? You, you, can get, you can get really mixed up doing that. I remember doing a, a funeral of a man once. Uh, he was an older guy. And his son was, well, about my age now. And um, he was, a, this guy had a, this guy just had a hard life. Um, the guy that died, had a, had a hard life, and everybody knew it. And there wasn't a lot of joy in his life or anything. And he had this goal, like the way that he would pass time and uh, sort of like, I guess, some therapy for himself, was to dig ditches. He just really enjoyed digging ditches. And so a few weeks before he died, he decided to undertake his greatest project, was to dig a ditch, like three feet deep, like 200 feet long, to connect some like little creek to his garden or something like that. I don't know. This is how the dude kept busy, right? Anyway, he died. His son made it his absolute goal to finish this ditch for his dad, you know? I remember checking in with this, with this guy uh, about a year later, just asked him how things were. He's like, my life is awful. It's like, why? Because all I'm ever doing is digging this ditch like, I'm trying to dig this ditch for my dad, and I, this is, like, all I do. I never see my family. I don't have any fun. I'm just trying to dig this ditch. I said, dude, why are you digging a ditch? He's like, this is my dad's dream. He wanted this ditch dug. I'm going to dig this for him in memoriam. I was like, I don't, 
I don't think that's your thing, man. <laughs> I don't think that you need to do this. I think you can, like, I think your dad will be perfectly fine with you, mainly because he's dead, um, with you not digging this ditch. And he was just like, really? You think that? I was like, yeah, man. I, just because, just because your dad, like, had this, you don't have to try and be something that you wish that he was or that he thought that he was in order to honor somebody. Be who you are, and you will bring honor to him. Isn't that our job as parents? To raise our kids so they leave? And so they, they fully become who they're fully meant to be? So that they're not tied to us and enmeshed with us? And any, I mean, that's the whole point. If David, we can take this same concept generationally, and Christians can get so busy breaking off generational sins, they don't live in the commands of God to their lives. It's, it's pretty crazy. God has made you to be you. You need to be you. You need to have a clear eye as to how you became you and what it is for your weaknesses and for your curses and for your sins to find you where you are. But it's important for us all to understand together that God is with us where we are now. And the same commands that he gave to our forefathers, he gave to the ones that are around now, which is us, which is to leave a generational blessing. What we most bless is to be who it is that God made us to be, which is what we see David do here. David, in 2 Samuel 8, establishes his kingdom around the government and ways of God. Chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house? Now remember, this is a merciful king. If you're a king in this time and you become a king, you find all of the possible connected members of that person's family fourth cousins twice removed by marriage and a separation painted blue in their old age who sort of sit in a backwoods cabin somewhere hiding from you you go find that guy and you kill him right the whole family of the former king is dead pure, pure and simple across the board not for david is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom i can show kindness for jonathan's sake now there was a servant of saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Am Amiel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to him to pay honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. All right. So, Mephibosheth, if you remember the story, Mephibosheth, <laughs> it's pretty good, huh? Mephibosheth had to flee. Right? David and Abner and that whole situation. The, David's army was coming. Abner was leading Saul's army into disarray. A woman, gra a nurse grabs Mephibosheth. He's five years old at the time and runs with him. She stumbles and drops him and he becomes lame in both of his feet. Right? So this is years later now. David says, can, is there anyone I can show kindness to for Jonathan? And he says to him, obviously Mephibosheth is going to be terrified. The king sent for you. Oh boy. He found me. A merciful king would put Mephibosheth in jail. 
right? But look what David does. I will restore the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to, are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in, king, in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet, which is another thing that kings would never do. You don't have a cripple in your presence. You're the king. You have whole, healthy people, right? David is just lavishing mercy in this situation. Literally, through both of these chapters, you see David making things right and being merciful at the same time. Tell me that's not God's heart. That God draws a hard, fast line that when you and I bump up against, we feel. And at the same time, he is deeply merciful and caring to us, his people. Like, this is Jesus, right? This is Jesus. This is Matthew 23, where Jesus just pounds the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, you deceivers of the people. God will judge you. And then we see him at in, the, in the middle of the night with a Pharisee, speaking gently, inviting him to understand God's spirit and be born again. God, D David is just revealing the, this, the, the, the beauty of God's heart. This is the gospel, right? There is the cross. It is only the cross. There's no way around the cross. You either stop at the cross and recognize it and worship and put your faith in Christ, or it's nothing else. But at the cross, what do you find? You find God made human bleeding and dying and dead, just pouring out love and mercy for you and I. And so it's this juncture of hard and mercy all at the same time. This is our God. This is Jesus. This is the beauty of God's government. This is the church saying, no, we don't believe that marriage is between two men or two women. Come experience the love of Jesus. It's possible. As churches, we just generally choose one of the two. And then we enculturate and define our gospel by one of those two things. And we say we thank God for the other one, that they're around somewhere in our city. That's ridiculous. You can stand on God's word and be a deeply broken and soft, loving person at the same time. Jesus was. And he says, greater things than this you will do. The proclamation of the gospel. The tender invitation to relationship. And David is just... It just oozes out of him. This is a man after God's heart. And he does this for Mephibosheth, who would have a rightful claim to the throne, who could, if he wanted to, try to mount an army and take over David. And if he won, 
everybody would go, yep, Mephibosheth's the king now. Because that was just legit at the time. And David embraces him and brings him to his own table. What does David write in the Psalms? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. By all cultural definitions, Mephibosheth is his enemy. And David says, no, you're my friend. Who does this remind us of? I mean, when Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. When Jesus says, bless your enemies. Love them. Serve them. When a Roman soldier tells you to carry his burden one mile, you carry it two. The beauty of mercy. In the course of time, verse 1, chapter 10, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Do I have the map here? Oh, no, it's a big war that's coming. There we go. Okay, so uh, which one is this? Is this Ammon or Aram? I got all of them. Ammonites. All right, yeah. The Ammonites are the worst, in my opinion. If you studied the Old Testament cultures, Ammonites are, they are, these are brutal, awful people. I mean, bleh. Like they, they worship Molech, who requires child sacrifices by the hundreds, and they bake their children slowly in brass ovens. They, they dance to their laughter, calling it music, or they dance to their crying, calling it laughter as they go to be with Molech. It's, it's a vicious, disgusting, like, idolatrous culture. If you saw the movie Apocalypto, a lot like that, except worse, with kids. You know, I mean, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. David says, I'm going to show kindness to these people, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. Right? This is a problem. Right? I mean... It's a question as to which one of these things is more humiliating, right? Wearing a shirt down to here with no pants, or in this culture, half a beard. You know, it's, uh, th this is just deep humiliation. This is like, this is Old Testament smack talk. Um, this is like when you make that one statement on the basketball court about somebody else's mom that went one too far. Like, it's not funny anymore, you know, which I've done. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was young, and I got beat up, and I got beat up for it. So, that's another story. Okay. Right? You just, you don't do this. You just don't do this. Honestly, killing them would have been less offensive. Killing them would have been less offensive. Uh, the, the Ammonite nobles draw a, I mean, a big line in the sand and just glare at David. You know, just, you think you're all big and bad. We'll see. Come over here. All right, so, when David's men came to the land of the Am... Oh, I read that, I'm sorry. Verse 5. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. 
when the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, like, duh. <laughs> like I said, they don't seem to be a bright people. Um, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Macha with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. Okay, so the Ammonites, I guess, are surprised that David's upset and realize that David is going to muster all of his forces and come against them. So they start drawing from all over the place, right? Up here is where the Arameans are. So they get a bunch of people from here. There's that 1,000. He's some, he's some nomad guy out here in the, Arabian, uh, the Arabian desert. And then this guy, Tob, and I have no idea where he comes from. Neither does anybody else. Um, but uh, he gets a big army together because he knows that David's coming against him. On hearing this, verse 7, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. Now you realize what this is, right? Like, you've got to understand, the population of the world at this point is not a lot. Okay? It, it's still very, very small in comparison. The population of this nation, we have 300 million people in, in America. This population of, of this nation and the nations that they're fighting against is, uh, is not expansive. I mean, a few million max. David gets the entire army together and sends them to battle. If David loses, what happens? Israel's done, right? If, if David loses, Israel's done. There is no more Israel then at that point. It'll become the territory of Ammon and the Arameans, right? Same thing on the other side. When this, this warrior culture, these, these people played for keeps. Like this was about nations trading hands back and forth, a tribal culture where it, it was, th- th- this was a very grave situation. David sent the entire army of fighting men. Verse eight, the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the open country. Okay, so they're playing a little trickery on them. If you go to Ammon, like I said, this is the edge of the Arabian desert. This is very flat. This is very open, but there are a few rolling hills. And so the, uh, the main city, which the assumption is Rabah, um, is where the entire army and the people of Israel go to the gates of the city to besiege it and attack it. But he's got these other four, uh, th- these other soldiers are hiding somewhere else in the open territory. What they're going to do is a sneak attack, right? A surprise attack so that the Israelites are attacking the city. This group's coming around from behind, and then they catch them in the crossfire, and you destroy the entire army. Verse 9, Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. So David sends the army, and he has Joab as his commander. So he deployed these troops against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites, right? So there's an attack coming both from behind and in front. Abishai, Joab's brother, maybe you remember him from the earlier chapters, takes the force and attacks the city. Joab takes a bunch of men, turns around, and goes at the one that is coming at them, either from the the flank or from the rear. He put the rest of the men under Abba. Okay, 11. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you come to my rescue. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong, and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight, which I imagine in that situation is about the best place you can come to rest on. 
You know, because this is a, this is a bad situation. Like, this is not, the, the, if anything, it's an even fight. Probably the Israelites are slightly outnumbered. Joab splits the army, puts his brother in charge of one. He takes the other. And Joab, I mean, maybe you know about Joab from the rest of the Second Samuel. I know that his reputation goes bad quickly. Um, but at this point in time, man, Joab, he does a great job. He makes a quick decision. He thinks on his feet. He keeps morale high. He tells his brother to be strong. And off they go to fight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the river. They went to Helam with Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. 40,000 of their foot soldiers. That's a lot. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. I guess so. I guess so, right? So, when it comes to all of this, what can we learn from David? Two things. David has in his heart two things, right? And you can turn to Psalm 66 while we're talking about these two things. Number one, David has in his heart the immediacy of the glory of God. In David's mind, God cannot get glory fast enough. God cannot get glory strong enough. Like, it, he is so hell-bent on getting God glory that he literally will go through hell and back to make sure that God receives the glory that is due his name. Period. David will do anything that he has to do to make sure that God and God's people are glorified the way that they are meant to. The immediacy of God's glory. There is an urgency. There is a point in David's heart that is completely, totally for God. We get told all the time as Christians, not all the time, I shouldn't say that, because actually it's not all the time. I, I always hyperbole, I try to make a statement. You probably have heard, God is for you. Who can be against you? God is for you. Who can be against you? Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. You should take that in and experience it. Are you for God? And you might say, yeah, are you for God like this? Are, are you for God like this? Where you will take the greatest threat to your kingdom and embrace that person? And bring them to your table to eat with you? Are you for God like that? Are you for God in a way that you want to proclaim the gospel with everything in you and tenderly be in relationship with people who don't know Jesus? Are you for God like that? Are you for God 
in seeing his glory reign in your heart and in your marriage and in your key relationships and in your home and at your workplace and in your classroom. Are you for God like that? There's no question that God's for you. He made that very evident. David is for God. Now, you know, there's, there, it, it, it's, it's semi-logical. Like, who's, who here is against God? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a bit ridiculous. But it's possible to just sort of, like, be, be there. You know what I mean? There I am in my faith. This is me and God. It's time for church on Sunday. Okay. And this is me and my faith. You know. David has a passion for Christ. A passion for God. A passion for God's glory. It informs every bit of who he is. Jesus has a passion for God. And a passion for God's glory. And these guys don't walk around, you know, like, uh, like they're not grandstanding. This isn't religiosity for them. This isn't a face so people can think about them a certain way. This is heart transformation that breathes itself out in their lives because of who God is. Enraptured by him. The beauty of Jesus. David has a heart for the immediacy of God's glory. And secondly, David has a heart for the blessing of generations. David understands that he is not living for himself. What we will see as we continue on and as David's life winds down and comes to a close is that everything he does here in 8, in eight through 10, he does for his son. He does it for his son, for the one who will, who will take the throne next. He wants his son to walk in victory. David is willing to literally put the entire kingdom on the line in one battle so that his son can be victorious when he reigns. We've forgotten generational blessing. And God is calling us back to remember that who we live for is not for ourselves. And I think this is quite possibly the greatest point of cultural differentiation between where we live right now in America and God's government is just a simple, basic idea of who it is that you live for. And yes, we live for God. I get it. And I'm talking about you yourself and the relationships that you have. We live for ourselves. We live for our immediacy of glory. Or we try and set up our generations wrongly. I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to talk about this a lot more in the future. But just, I want to bring out the principle at this point that David has an eye to his generations. Psalm 66. David writes this in the midst of victory. Shout with joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done. How awesome his works in man's behalf. 
He turned the sea to dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us and refined us. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and answered my prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. This is a heart that is enraptured with God and with the victory of God. This is who you and I are. We are meant to be enamored with God, to see his glory and his beauty as the greatest thing that our hearts have ever rested on. That's your destiny. That's your finishing point. That's not your starting point. Your starting point is not the cross. I need you, Jesus. Your ending point is the cross. I need you, Jesus. And everything in between is about him. It's about seeing him and his glory and his beauty, his kingdom, his work. And our role here on earth is that God invites us into this. We tend to think of a relationship with God as something that's weighty. It is not weighty. Guilt is weighty. Shame is weighty. Absolutely. Sin is weighty. Yes, all those things will weigh you down. But that's not God. God invites us into freedom and beauty and calls us to be ourselves, who he made us to be, just like David is here. And like Jesus is, enraptured with his beauty. And as we are enraptured with his beauty, we will experience victory in our lives. It might not be victory like you and I think of it, but it will be victory. Because God is for us, and we are for God. And at his place of being, this place of being captivated by him is the only place to be. David stays solely focused on God. But let me give you just a small taste, and then we'll end. Louisa, you can come back up. Look at chapter 11. Go back to 2 Samuel 11. Remember, David's heart, fully captivated by God, and deep, deep victory because of it. Verse 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army 
They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. We're going to see David forget who he is. We're going to see him begin to become enraptured with someone else's beauty. We're going to see him taste of fruit that God did not give him to eat. And we'll watch what it looks like for a man who is after God's own heart to be broken and to avert his gaze and then to experience restoration. David is you and me. David is we. And we are invited into this beautiful victory and life that God has for us because he is the conqueror. He's the overcomer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the beauty that is Jesus. We thank you for the life that you pour into us. We thank you for the victory that you give us. You are our victory. I, I think, you know, David knew that. I mean, he fought the Ammonites, he fought the Arameans, he fought the Moabites and the Edomites and the Philistines. One thing we learn time and time again from David is that he understood that you were the prize to be gained. We see that in Jesus. You know, Jesus fought against religion. Jesus fought against oppression. Jesus fought for freedom, spiritual freedom. But he understood that you were the great prize. God, keep us on you. Please, Father, keep us on you. Focused on you, seeing you, experiencing you, knowing you, proclaiming you, engaging you, changed, transformed by you. Walk us into your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, I was reading in Romans. And God gave me the benediction for today, even though I didn't know I was going to be doing the benediction today until I got in this morning. And Jay said, hey, can you do the benediction? I said, yeah. I was like, uh, I didn't tell Jay this, but I already knew what I was going to do for the benediction. And uh, so I'm sitting there listening to the service, and then Christy gets up, and I'm just like, well, this is just way too, like, what God wants. This is really sweet. So, um, Christy, thanks for listening to the Spirit and sharing what you did. So uh, it, this is from Romans 6 about being baptized with Christ. Um, and I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11. It says, when he died, when Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Okay, so Jesus lives, you know, he, he dies once to break the power of sin for us, to break the power of sin in us. And now he lives for God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin. Not because, not because we died on the cross, but because the verse 4 says, because Jesus died on the cross for us. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God, alive to God, alive to God through Jesus, right? So if, if we know that the power of sin has been broken on the cross because of Jesus' death, we're alive, okay? We're not dead. We're, we're alive. But we're not alive to ourselves. We're not alive for our own glory. We're not alive for our own happiness. Oh, sure, God wants us to be happy and joyful and all of those things. 
but we're alive to, to God. Like, that's what we live for. And we do that through Christ. And as Christy shared her testimony today, you know, just that baptism of somebody who is dead to sin because of the cross and now is alive to God. And the powers of the world, as Jay said at the beginning of the service, can't come against that if we're alive to God. So that's the blessing over us this morning is that we are alive to God through Christ. That's what we live for, for his glory, because we mimic what Jesus lives for, for the glory of the Father. So if you want to stand up and receive this blessing from him. God, we receive this morning life from you. That sin hasn't been broken because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And as Jesus raised from the dead and lives for your glory. So sin is broken in us because of his death on the cross. And we too live, we are alive to God, not to anything else, but we are alive to God. So as brothers and sisters in Christ at Cornerstone who have received the cross and who have received Jesus' grace and mercy on the cross. We walk from here today, living God, to you and through your Son. And there is no other better place to be than that. And Jesus, we, um, we pray this in your powerful name. The same name, uh, the same person who took the sin, took our sins on the cross. We pray that in that name. Amen.